Welcome back to the Kaiku Podcast. Chris and Chris are with me. Hello. And uh, we are here to begin our journey through uh, the filmography of David Lynch. Um, we have uh, finished up Kurosawa. It's been a couple of years, but uh, we did it. This one will be shorter, maybe. Who knows? Um, but Chris, would you like to... Uh, well, before we jump in, um, Chris, we know you have a extensive... Background with David Lynch, you mentioned that Twin Peaks was your favorite movie of whenever that year was, even though it's not a movie. But, uh, Chris, what is your background with, with this director? Look here, buddy. Just this year, you put The Last Dance as, like, your second favorite movie of the year, and that ain't a movie either, buddy. It's a documentary <laughs> movie. Yeah, and this is a miniseries movie. What's the difference? <laughs> um, I have some familiarity with David Lynch. Um, I think I've seen Dune... Um, probably before I was receptive to who David Lynch was uh, back when sci-fi channel just aired like whatever weird ass movie they could get the rights to uh, the good old days of the sci-fi channel, as we call it. Um, and I'm pretty, I've seen uh, some other, some of his films. I am looking forward to this because I've actually not done too much with twin peaks. I, I think I started watching it in college, but like anything in college, just one weekend and you suddenly get sidetracked into 20 other things you're going to entertain yourself with so uh, I did not wrap it up or get yeah. very far in. and of course oh yeah and of course Mulholland Drive one of my favorite films so oh, yeah. uh, I'm looking forward to when we talk to that talk about that way down the line but that is a uh, hell of a movie a rag of a movie um, I'm looking forward to revisiting it as well I've seen that I've seen Blue Velvet and um, seen Dune and I saw Dune in college, but also it was not good, and I fell asleep. And uh, well, we'll see. It'll be one I... of our more negative broadcasts, I believe, <laughs> podcasts, I believe. <laughs> yeah, we'll see how I uh, how receptive I am to it in the year 2021. It's probably when we'll watch it. Um, oh yeah, it's not far. It's not far. It's it's just a couple movies down the line. Yeah. So, uh, but Chris, you've watched. Uh, I assume everything from David Lynch. I, I, not exactly everything. I haven't watched his filmed concert of Duran Duran. Um, it seems yes, like other... on brand for you to go watch that, though. <laughs> you know, it does. It does, but I, I just I just haven't gotten around to it yet. But I have seen all sixty or seventy some odd short films and all all ten films. I've seen every single one of his TV shows, uh, of which there are three. Not just Twin Peaks. He did two other very short-lived ones. Um, I, my first experience was actually during the uh, the old podcast that I used to run, the Everyman Critics, um, back in 2009. Uh, I, I had known of David Lynch, and Eraserhead was one of those like looming movies that I know that I needed to see because it was going to be um, extremely my shit. Uh, <laughs> But I just never got around to it, and his movies weren't, like, super easy to, to get a hold of. They were available, but it wasn't like you could just walk into the store and, oh, there's five copies for me to 
pick pick up one. Uh, and so my buddy Dan, who co-hosted the podcast with me, it was it was his turn to pick a flick, so he picked a Blue Velvet, and I was just like, this is this is awesome. I didn't super super fall in love with it, but I was like, this is super awesome. And Dan had had all of his movies on on DVD, so he let me borrow Eraserhead and Lost Highway, and which I'll, I'll I'll talk about my history with Lost Highway when we get there. But I watched those and I was just like, oh my sweet Jesus, uh, <laughs> it is oh my sweet Jesus. And then I uh, yeah, and then I bought the the, the DVD set of Twin Peaks. Um, so basically, to keep it short, because this will be revisited when we get to Twin Peaks, me and TV shows, we don't super get along. Like, there's a ton, a ton, a ton of TV shows that I like, but there's only two TV shows in existence that I've seen where I'm like, no, this is something that I truly, deeply love, and this is something that I consider to be one of the great things one of them is hannibal and the other is twin peaks those are the only two tv shows that have completely obsessed me and so when i watched twin peaks for the first time that was like a revelation because that was before hannibal came out so i was just like oh my god this is a tv show that is extremely my shit and is everything um since then i've watched everything by david lynch multiple multiple times i think i'm up to my 13th viewing of the twin peaks movie fire walk with me <laughs> i basically i basically rewatch twin peaks at least once a year the whole thing the original series the movie and the return um i've i, I w- i've been watching it basically every year for a couple of years up until the return and after the return it's been like clockwork like every nine months i start watching it it's just it's something i started watching it a a few days ago i even though you know we're going to be watching this for the podcast i just i couldn't get it out of my system i had to pop it in and when that bird came on screen and that theme music hit it was just like oh i'm oh and i'm i just got to the reveal of who killed laura palmer so i'm buzzing right through (laughs) the music is very good like yeah, I've seen a couple episodes of Twin Peaks as well. Um, I like I liked what I saw, but I uh, kind of petered out for whatever reason. And um, my sole impetus for watching it is Eucharist. Um, so we'll get, we'll get there when we get there. Um, yep. But uh, well, I won't get into my philosophy of television right now. But uh, <laughs> Chris, lead us into what we are watching today. All right, so we're we're kicking this off by doing a. Basically, every single short film that David Lynch made prior to Eraserhead and then one random short that he did afterwards simply because it's included on Criterion's release of Eraserhead. That's the only reason why we're doing Premonitions of an Evil Deed is because it's part of that Criterion release, so it's available. Um, But before we get started, uh, there's a couple of things that I wanted to just throw out there for our listeners, and that's a couple of definitions. Uh, First... I want to define the word absurd. Basically, according to the dictionary, it means wildly unreasonable, illogical, or inappropriate. To go a little bit further, there's a philosophy called absurdism, and that is defined as the inherent conflict between the human tendency to seek inherent value and meaning in life 
and the human inability to find any in a purposeless, meaningless, or chaotic and irrational universe. So the absurd comes from the contradictory nature of these two ideas existing simultaneously, us trying to find purpose and purpose not existing. The other word I want to define real quick is surrealism. Uh, surrealism, this is all from Wikipedia. I'm keeping it keeping it easy. <laughs> uh, surrealism was a cultural movement developed in Europe. The movement is best known for its visual artworks, writings, and the juxtaposition of distant realities to activate the unconscious mind through re- through imagery. So the purpose of surrealism is to try to unlock your subconscious, the, the, the part of your mind that you're not aware of, and just to, to kick that into gear by the use of imagery, either that being through visual imagery, uh, lyrical imagery, sound, anything that you can think of that, that warps your perception and, untap- and taps into your unconscious mind. The reason why I just wanted to define those real quick is those are basically David Lynch's goalposts throughout his entire work, is absurdism and surrealism. Uh, the other thing I want to get to real quick is there's a documentary that I highly recommend everyone watch. It's called David Lynch, The Art Life. Um, it's not even about his films. It's <laughs> it's about his life as a painter. So David Lynch is a painter first and foremost. The This ties into his first film that would be we'll be discussing. But his his whole thing was painting and visual art. What he calls the art life simply consists of smoking cigarettes, drinking coffee, and painting. That's all he ever wants to do is drink coffee, smoke cigarettes, and paint. That's the art life to him. And so for his first short film that we'll be discussing, it's called Six Men Getting Sick. This came to him because he was working on a painting where he painted the entire canvas black, and he was working on bringing out some green bushes inside of the black. And he thought, wow, wouldn't it be awesome to like see it move, actually move? And so that's why, that's how he got into film. He didn't get into film because he loves cinema and he wanted to make movies. He got into film because he wanted to make literal art, visual art and paintings move and come to life and present that to an audience. So his, his first film was created for a sculpture competition at the school that he was attending in Philadelphia at the time. This is 1967 or 68, I can't recall. And basically what he did is he created this giant sculpture of these men's faces coming out of a a giant brick clay. And then he hand-drew animation that he then projected from a projector onto the sculpture. So the short film that we get to see is the the completed product. We see the sculpture and we see the projection, the animation projected onto it. It is about a minute long and it has this really annoying siren. Just looping over and over. And the, the, the minute, minute and 20 seconds or whatever long it is, segment is looped six times. So it's got the six men getting sick six times. <laughs> um, that is essentially the film. It is a, a literal art exhibit projected. And Corey, what did you think about it? 
my react my immediate reaction to it was Indiana Jones voice it belongs in a museum. <laughs> um, and I didn't really have any deeper thoughts about it. Like I thought um, it should be it is a, not very long, obviously, and um, it's repeated six times, so it's even shorter than what it truly is. Um, so it's something that like should be appreciated introspectively. What about you, Chris? Um, yeah, it is. It's something that you would see without a doubt, you know, in a art uh, art museum, um, especially just you know on a loop. Um, the the this overall, I think in approaching uh, David Lynch, we're going to probably um, go back to him, you know, being a painter as his real trade. Um, I guess you could say like that's uh, his him being a painter informs the way he makes film, um, and this is. I mean, this is, you know, a moving painting, um, and I don't think there's really anything more to it. Um, it's just, you know, meant to be very visual um, and shows a lot, I think, of those elements that kind of are the goalposts, absurdism and surrealism in his work throughout his career. But um, I don't think there's much more to it. Um, that's not a knock on it, um, but there, it doesn't have this, you know... It, it's it's to be looked at. It's not to be, I guess, watched. I sh- is probably the best way to phrase it. Mm-hmm. I read this yeah. uh, review on Letterboxd from someone named London, um, and they say people all over the world suffer every day, and the vast majority of people feign empathy, but then they don't do anything to help. The sirens are those fa- false promises continuously thrown at the meek, the sick, the poor, the disenfranchised. Quote, help is coming. End quote, they yell, yet help never arrives, it never gets any closer, but those same people will continue to push that help, willing to arrive, never letting those false hopes fade. Um, and like that, those kinds of um, analyses and introspections about about this movie is um, th- exactly what I would want out of it. Like, this should be <laughs> discussed in an hour-long philosophy or art history class, or art appreciation mm-hmm. class. Um, but like, I don't think there's a, a right way or wrong way to interpret this like that is the beauty of what this is yeah and that, and, and and you what you're talking about chris is, is very very correct that the going back to him being a, a painter is a trade so that review that you read Corey, is super cool because that is like if you were in a museum you would be looking at it and you would be trying to, to trying to interpret what it means to you like what emotions it evokes and that review, like, that's a very good and very strong interpretation, a very good invocation of what he's witnessing. Um, at the end of the loop, the, 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 the six men end up vomiting all over themselves. Help didn't ca- come, and they made a mess. Um, I really like that idea. I had never thought of it that way before. Uh, I think this is a very – this is a more difficult short film to watch because – I find the siren to be excruciatingly annoying. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and so watching it, you know, six times over and over and over again for four four minutes or whatever it is, it's kind of a chore. But if I was standing in a museum looking at the real real sculpture with the projection going on to it, like, I don't know how long I would stand there. I could stand there for ten minutes because there's – the, the animation, the imagery that he is in, invoking, it's super strong. Like, there's a lot going on, and it, it, it takes the six times to look at different pieces of it, um, which is, it, it comes back to, this is an art exhibit 
put onto film. That's really what it is. It's an art exhibit put onto a film that people can enjoy in their home. And I think that's super fucking awesome. Like, I love that idea. And I love that that is something that is available to us. But watching it on a TV, there's something there's something in that translation that just doesn't quite work, I think. Mm-hmm. Okay, so moving along, he actually had another short film that he made after this one called Sailing with Bushnell Keeler. Um, I didn't have us watch that because it's kind of like a home movie of him and Bushnell on a boat hanging out. It's super fun. I really like that short, but it's not. Uh, it does. It does. It doesn't drive for the kind of behind the scenes into the way that he makes films and the way that his art functions. So that's why I had to skip that. The so the next one we'll talk about real quick is called Fictitious Anison Commercial. For those who uh, are listening and don't know, Anison is just a painkiller. It's like Tylenol or ibuprofen. I'm sure it still exists somewhere, but people don't use it very much anymore. This short film is exactly what's on the tin. It's a fake commercial for Anison that features... I, I, I still haven't looked it up. Let me look it up right now. But it looks like a young Jack Fisk to me. It is Jack Fisk. Woohoo! Uh, so for anyone who doesn't know, Jack Fisk is one of the most famous and uh, not really prolific, but one of the most famous and revered art directors in film. Uh, some of the films that he's known for being a production designer include There Will Be Blood, The Tree of Life, The Revenant, The Master. This guy, he's he's buku in the, in the world of production design and art design. Uh, Jack Fisk and David Lynch were friends in college. Um, and that's how David Lynch knows Sissy Spacek, because Sissy Spacek is married to Jack Fisk. See, this is how deep my David Lynch rabbit hole goes. I am so sorry. Um, <laughs> so basically, this short film is nothing more than we see Jack Fisk in excruciating pain. A crazy old bearded man shows some anison. Jack Fisk pops some anison, and all he's feeling better. Chris, what did you think about the short? Um, so I had to look up what Anison was before the before I watched it, and it's like it's a painkiller. And then I watched it, and it's a approach to obviously this wouldn't ever be a real commercial, but it's like the idea of what a painkiller commercial. I guess I mean you'd still see it now, um, but probably back in the '60s and '70s, the way that they marketed painkillers. This is all of the themes in how they were doing those commercials, kind of turned up to turned up max dial. Um, in, you know, just the kind of over-the-top expressions about going from being in pain and then being, you know, how would I say, being, you know, out of pain. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's One would say absurd, even. It would be absurd, yes, yes. It's, it's, it is an absurd it's commercial. Ridiculous. Yeah, it's only, what, a minute long? I mean, it's basically the length of a commercial. Mm-hmm. Did you like it? Did you have fun? I had, I had fun, um, especially coming... Um, so I, I watched them. I did not watch them in the proper order. I watched this one, I think, after um, a couple others. So it was like a come down for me, I think, after the alphabet, but uh, which we'll get to probably in, in a couple couple films. But um, this is like this is Lynch just being very, uh, as you said, very absurd 
it's it's there's there's clearly I think a sense of humor that goes into it, but not a sense of um, like the humor is very much like let's just be surreal and silly and over the top, and and um, we know what an Anison commercial should look like, so this is just going to be everything in the commercial just taken to the the outrageous limit. <laughs> Corey, uh, yeah, I agree with <laughs> I agree with all of that. Um, I I pretty much uh, enjoyed this one. Um, I know there's like this. Uh, there's probably like a YouTube culture of fake commercials that people make on TikTok or Vine or whatever. Um, and whenever I watch one of those, I'm usually delighted. And this was the the same kind of situation. I'm just delighted by by the nature of fake commercials and like I want real commercials to be like this just because they are so absurd. But um, alas, this this one was enjoyable though. It got the uh, got the point across without any any dialogue or any side effects. Yeah, I I really like I really like watching this one. It's like one of my favorite bits is when he's just howling in pain and he looks like he's acting like a monster or a troll or something, and the dog sits up like, "What the fuck? <laughs> this is totally unscripted. You can't." You can't pull it off, you know, without having trained dogs and all this other stuff. You just, you just can't. It was just this beautiful moment of this dog just going, "What the fuck is he doing?" <laughs> um, yeah, it's short, it's fun, and I like it. All right, next is another short film. These are all short films. Why did I say that? <laughs> now you know uh, my pain. The next one is called Absurd Encounter with Fear. So this one has a blue man walking up to a woman who is cowering in fear in the middle of a flower field. He unzips his pants and starts pulling out his flower penises, and then he falls over. Discuss. Corey? Uh, when I first saw this, I was like, oh, this is this is a Blue Man Group sketch, right? This has got to be a Blue Man Group sketch. <laughs> 1967. Yeah. Um, no, it was weird. Um, this one was one of my uh, lesser favorite of these shorts. Um, uh, I don't know. I think the, the, the title just says everything that you need to know about it. Mm-hmm. It is, in fact, an absurd encounter with fear. But the thing that I really like... Um, about this one is how you think that the the film is from the perspective of the blue man, but he's not having the absurd encounter with fear. The woman is. So therefore, the blue man is her fear, and him just whipping out his dick is what she's afraid of. Him whipping out his flower penises is patently absurd. It's ridiculous. And she is, you know, working through her fears with this absurd imagery which is surrealism um i dig that like i think that that's a really really fun and smart way to uh go about making a you know what is this like 45 second short film that's cool chris what about you yeah this was um it was definitely like the the juxtaposition between the title and the fact that we're actually seeing it from the perspective of the of fear um it kind of takes you i think for a second as it, when you see the title, because especially when, when there's like minute short film, the title has to give away a lot of what you your expectation is as you watch it, because um, there's not going to be the time to build up uh, anything with it, you know a ton. Um, so the title tells you it's an absurd encounter with fear, and then you're like, okay, so what's this blue guy doing? Wait, this blue guy is what this lady's afraid of, um, and just yeah, the absurdity obviously of, of just the endless things he's whipping out of his. Um, 
the flower penis as he's pulling out. Very, very strange. This feels like, um, I think, in a, in a way, this is David Lynch really kind of starting to find his voice in the way that he shoots film and the way that he uses just the space and the the, pe- the people um, that he's the actors he's got all that the way that he just overall shoots um, a film I think this is him approaching um, kind of a development point there or developing there um, from being just a painter where you would almost think um, you just kind of leave the camera in the place leave, leave the camera still and let um, let the paint let the visual do the work he's using the camera to tell some of the story now and this is probably the first time I mean it's like the third or fourth short he made so um this is like the first time you really i think get a get a glimpse of that like actual filmmaking mm-hmm. i can agree with that and that and that's one thing that we haven't been talking about is how each of these things like we'll we'll probably get we'll get to it with the alphabet and the grandmother i'm sure but you can see how each of these short films so far show him progressing not really progressing but experimenting with different facets of filmmaking to which he finally brings it all together here in a little bit yeah, i mean we saw uh i mean when we did the last project when we watched all the kurosawa movies we saw him really grow from from movie to movie like uh when, when we were watching sanctuary sukakta it was obviously very rough same well um not the same kind of rough with six men getting sick but uh, I would say with like the Anderson commercial, it's kind of uh, rough, but you can tell the slinch. Um, but then like once we got to uh, one more sling day, Drunken Angel, uh, Kurosawa's filmmaking really started to take, um, or we, like we really started to recognize what we had seen before in like Seven Samurai and stuff like that. And yeah, same thing with Absurd Counter with Fear and really the grandmother, which I will mention when we get there. All right, so before we move on to the next one, real quick, I want to interject one of the things that is very crucial for anyone who's listening that wants to follow along in our David Lynch project, which I greatly endorse and I think would be super fun for anyone who's listening to to follow along with us because these will be spoiler casts. There's literally no way you can talk about a David Lynch movie without spoiling the shit out of it. It's just simply the nature of the beast. But... David Lynch does not provide answers. So you you will watch his stuff and you will say, well, what did that mean? I don't understand. Um, and you can watch every interview under the sun and you will never get an explanation from David Lynch. The reason for that comes back to, again, him being a painter. When a painter or visual artist creates a work of art, you look at it, you create your own interpretation. You analyze how this piece of media that you're interacting with influences you. What does it make you think? What does it make you feel? Um, it could be a lot. It could be a little. It could be nothing. You could think that it means one thing and someone else could think it means another thing. And that is itself the beauty of art. David Lynch functions like that extremely with his film work you will we will be discussing that with the racer head and then we'll take a little bit of a lapse from that for a little bit but then his films start getting weirder and weirder as they go along and that's where this really really starts to play in into it so i don't want any any of the three of us feel like we have to 
agree with what another person says. If you feel something completely different, by all means, belt it out. If you don't like something, um, belt it out. I, I have a, a, a plan for a format when we start getting to his actual films. And it includes, you know, talking about stuff that you liked or pros and stuff that you didn't like because you're going to feel the gamut with with his art. And that really begins in earnest with his next short film, The Alphabet. The Alphabet is you hear the alphabet being said and the alphabet song and there's a lot of animated imagery that happens and then there's a woman who's in a bed who may or may not be feeling well, um, or is the devil, or is just crazy. We don't know. Um, I really like this short film. This is really where it feels like you're watching a David Lynch film uh, for the first time. It's still only about four minutes long, I think, maybe even less than that. And the... So for everyone who's listening out out there, one of the things that I encourage everyone to do while that you follow us through this journey through his filmography is to not just look at his film works, but take a look at his painting and his visual art. I have a couple of David Lynch art books. This is I'm a super super big David Lynch fan. All right. We <laughs> I know, few, Chris. I I'm just I'm just <laughs> emphasizing I have a few of his art books and look at his art and really kind of experience who he is as a painter. And the alphabet really is the first glimpse that I ever got to see of what his look like, Um, what kinds of weird ass shit, the, the surrealism again, where it's just it's seemingly random stuff that's trying to unlock pieces of my brain. It's so fascinating to look at, but it's also terrifying. David Lynch is not really a horror director. His films aren't classified as horror, per se, but he has the innate ability to entirely unsettle and terrify. And the alphabet really, really shows that with the the woman in the bed and the way that the alphabet is sung with the animation – like it's just it's kind of like this whole complete itty bitty package that he only grows from. But this is the first thing where it really feels like I'm watching a David Lynch thing. Chris? Yeah, I was gonna comment this is definite yeah, this is the first real David Lynch, like this is him realizing his um filmmaking style. Um he's I think figured out the ropes of how to blend the surrealism um, he likes in, a, in absurdism. He likes to paint. He, that's that's kind of in his in his head um, with you know how to do that instead of with brushes with a camera. Um, and, and obviously there, there's there's paintings involved in in this. It's it's animate and animations. I don't think it's fifty fifty, but it might be might be pretty close to that. Um, but overall, it, it's really unsettling, um, especially if you try to watch it late at night like I did. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, but and, and, and it actually, you know, when I thought about it, I said, well, that's kind of if if you if you and we've all been there, we've all had nights where we just can't fall asleep. 
Um, and then we're like, okay, I need to do something to settle myself down. And then that, that settling yourself down turns into like a more panicked, oh man, I need to settle myself down. And that's what this, this kind of felt like, like, you know, the alphabets away, like counting sheep or, um, breathing exercises, all sorts of things that people do to try to settle themselves down if they can't fall asleep. Um, and this was just like, in that, that's what my interpretation of the, um, the short was that it's you know just the overwhelming panic that sets in when you just can't fall asleep um and it feels like an eternity um even if it's only the length of doing an alphabet 26 letters but um but that's kind of was my perspective on it but overall it, this is significant because this is david lynch really realizing his voice as a filmmaker the first for the first time yeah i can I didn't really feel that way about this one. Um, I think it is him. Uh, I mean, like in terms of the live action mix, I think he is really getting into the deep end of uh, his own brain in terms of uh, filmmaking. But um, the animated part, animated parts are really what I'm more interested in in the short. Um, like once I saw six men getting sick and the animated parts of um the grandmother i became like way more interested in like what lynch the animator could be um because like there is not this uh appetite in the u.s for adult animation and not not like porn animation obviously but um but that's that's the only thing that adult means in america yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah um but as anime fans, we know there is a there is a lot of um, adult stories that you can tell through animation, um, and I think Link really would have thrived in that environment. Unfortunately, he lives in the U.S. and we don't have that here, uh, except I guess some of like one or two Oscar shorts per year, maybe. <laughs> um, but this one was uh, it was kind of weird for me. Um, I don't know if I really liked it, but it was like a just a visual treat, as was uh, the one that I watched immediately prior to this, which was Six Man Games. Yeah, so for, for anyone listening, uh, fictitious Anison commercial and Absurd Encounter with Fear, uh, we had to watch those off of YouTube. Um, I don't know if they've been officially released somewhere they had to have been, because there's copies all over YouTube. But um, on the Criterion release of Eraserhead, as well as on the Criterion channel, the short films that are a part of that package are Six Men Getting Sick, The Alphabet, The Grandmother, The Amputee, and uh, Premonitions of an Evil Deed. So that's why Corey went from Six Men Getting Sick to The Alphabet, and most likely Chris as well, because that's what I did, because that's just how it's packaged for us. All right. Moving on to the next one. This is this is a big one. I feel um, the a very one. big. One. The, the long it's thirty minutes long. We go straight from two minute, four minute, one minute to thirty minutes of David Lynch. Beautiful. <laughs> uh, this is the grandmother. Uh, Corey, why don't you go ahead and give us your best rundown of what happens in this uh, this short? Oh my god, I have no idea. <laughs> Uh, no, it's basically the, I mean, Lynch has his typical, um, like, lynching depictions of how these things happen, but it it opens with, uh, a a root of a tree, it seems, and the, uh, the parents, the mother and the father, are born from this root, just, like, fully grown adults, um, at the beginning, they are 
crawling around like animals as if they are uh, are not yet evolved to the point where they have like thoughts and um, can can uh, think of themselves as beings and have language and such. I mean, not that they say anything. Uh, any words in the movie to begin with, it is a silent, not silent movie, but a non-speaking movie. Um, and from there, they actually I don't remember how they had the, how they have the kid. Does that the kid grow from uh, the yes. trees as well? Okay. Yes, they they seeds from both parent plants float off to another part of the soil okay. and create the a blood pores instead of a instead of a liquid base. It's a blood base that 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 sprouts out the child. Okay. Yeah, so they have the kid, and then uh, basically from there, it's like this abuse story about the two parents who are abusing this kid. Um, a key part part of it is the kid wakes his bed, and it's like not real pee. It's um, like painted on orangish, yellowish color. Uh, it looks very, very strange and off-putting, but the father just completely like constantly throws the son's head into the bag to like shame him um so the boy uh tries to find something else in the world that uh, will love him so he grows a grandmother out of a different bag um and as the as the grandmother's growing as the grandmother uh, pops out of the tree-ish root thing i don't know how to describe that uh <laughs> His bag becomes more and more urine stained each time his father smokes his head into the egg. And, yeah, it is um, a highly, highly fascinating look at the nature of abuse and like what that can do to a child's brain, a person's brain. But like in particular, the um, the moments when the dad is smashing the son's head into the bag and it, like the ca- the camera, but the the people in the shot just freeze. But um, it's not like a freeze frame. It's like they're trying not to move, but you can tell they're kind of still moving, and then it switches to a different angle, and then it's like, uh, switches, not switches perspective. I, how do I even describe what the fuck David Lynch is doing? Uh, <laughs> with the camera here. But he's like, um, like the, you know, those, this is a very dumb way to put it, but those like 3D things, 3D things on paper that you move back and forth, it's kind of like that. Um, yeah. With, with this this shot of like the boy suspended above the bag and like I felt like that was uh, peak Lynch to this point, but I really like this one. Chris, yeah, I, the, this was of all the ones we watched, this was uh, the the one I, I liked the most. Um, it is definitely unsettling, and it's it's definitely about uh, thematically about the effects of um, abusive, um, spiteful parents. Um, the, the boy's parents are never seen like I, they're never seen in a positive light at any point um and and we're meant to kind of d- despise them from the start uh, i and and kind of root for the boy um but at the same time like the way it's made it's so just it's dark it's kind of grimy at times um and it's you know as we've said has like a ton of elements of, of absurdism and surrealism in it um, but the overall theme is is that this boy basically grows a grandmother because um, the grandmother is going to love him unconditionally. Um, and as the grandmother grows and, and stays with the grandmother, um, he, as Corey said, it's like he's peeing more in the bed. Um, and I and I was trying to 
wrap my head around exactly what that was trying to say, but obviously the the, the parents are not addressing. They're they're blaming the the boy for something that um, you know might be out of his control, peeing the bed when you're asleep. Um, and I think by introducing the grandmother into his life, he is someone who loves him, so he can finally just almost relax. Um, but because of the fear of his parents he can't so there's like the conflict between him being happy with his grandmother and the parents still abusing him and not addressing the root problem of him peeing the bed which just causes him to keep peeing the bed um i was trying to trying to really figure out exactly what the message of why the boy was still peeing like you know wetting the bed after the grandmother showed up um but then i realized you know it's because wetting the bed's not the the antagonist in this story it's the parents and their abuse um but them thinking that you know they they just beat the boy to death then eventually he'll uh, he'll stop when that's not the solution um and i think at the same time it's also maybe saying that seeking this unconditional like love and support from a grandmother who obviously is for many people have positive experiences with their grandmothers it doesn't fill in the hole that is left by abusive parents um and then eventually the grandmother will go away and you will be left again with, you know, you'll be leaving your, your kid again with an empty, uh, empty life because you've just abused your, your child for their whole childhood. Um, so I think there's a definite theme there and a message about the dangers. It, as I talk about it, I think it's much more uh, targeted towards people, uh, probably Lynch's age in their early mid twenties who were starting to have kids telling them like, Hey, don't, be these parents please and he might have even already started to experience it um from acquaintances and it may have been something that stuck in his head um or maybe experiences from his or friend or childhood his childhood or his friends or people he grew up with childhood um something just about the unending and lasting nature of of child abuse um so it is a difficult subject and it's filmed obviously very in a very unsettling way but i think overall it's a very um poignant and strong piece of filmmaking by David Lynch. Very nice. Yeah, no, th- this is without a doubt the best one of the bunch. Uh, I-, I really, really love this this short film. I think it stands up against you know his feature films. And one of the things that that I find really fascinating about it is the speech, like Corey was mentioning, that nobody talks, but every everybody they're barking like dogs. They're woofing. Um, so everybody, they're, they're equating the parents' animalistic behavior to that as of wild dogs. So that's why every time he pees the bed, the dad basically picks him up and is smashing his face into the pee puddle. Cause that's what people do to dogs when they piss on the rug. So it's, it's this, I, I, I feel like it's this pass, passing on of learned behavior. You know, what you think is good for one thing is good for another thing, and it's never good. Um, I don't believe in treating a dog that way either. Um, but this this short, it, it connects with me a lot because I, I, had, I had a rough childhood, but even if you didn't have a rough childhood, I think the universal thing here is somehow it, it, to, a, to a kid, it always feels like your grandparents love you more than your real parents because your real parents are stuck with having to discipline you having to try and teach you and raise you whether they're 
good at it or not. Uh, obviously, the parents in this absolutely are not good at their job. It's still, it's still a parent's job to try and teach you. So, yes, it's presented as abuse, but you can view it as simply that they're trying to teach him to not pee the bed um, by mimicking how we treat animals and them barking and woofing like dogs, bringing that correlation. So when you get to your grandma's house for summer vacation or whatever, it's nothing but, you know, presents and cookies and adoration. Um, and, and that's and that's what this boy experiences with the, this grandmother that he grows out of the bed in the attic. It's when he's with her, he finally feels he feels the thing that he's missing from his parents. And that's love. And that that's what I think I, that's what I get from this is the strongest thing is he that feeling of love. Everything a child wants is just to be loved. And sometimes it's difficult to show your child that you love them when you're also trying to teach them and raise them. Grandparents aren't trying to do any of those things. They've already done their job. You know, I've had, my grandparents have actually told me these things that this is how their brain works. We've already done our job. It's your fucking problem, you know, to raise the kid. I'm just going to, you know, shower them with gifts and love. That's, that's how grandparents think. And when my kid brother had a daughter, oh my God, seeing the shift in how my parents act full stop was like, that's miraculous. I, I know he's fallen out of favor because he turned out to be a horrible human person, but Bill Cosby had a great comedy sketch on his uh, himself album where he talks about the way uh, grandparents treat their grandchildren there's basically one part where he's like this is not the woman i grew up with (laughs) i remember that Um, it's (laughs) it's a great bit um and that's one of the 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 strongest things that i pull from from this short film is that that alienation and then knowing that your grandparents are less for this world like that's heartbreaking and if you're not getting that nurturing love that you're supposed to be getting from your parents when he loses his grandmother at the end of the short that to, to me, that is what opens him up into a, a worser spot that he, it's not so much that he's left with the whole of, of the abuse. It's that he, he, he had love and now it's gone and he's not getting that supplemented supplemental love from the people who are supposed to be giving it to him. And that, you know, the age old question, is it better to have loved and lost than to never have loved at all? That's a huge conflict because of course it's better to have loved and lost, but when you love and lose the loss is that much greater than if you had never loved at all. But if you've never loved at all, you are, you're never a, you're never able to complete yourself as a person, never able to to really grow. And I th- I think that's one of the other driving forces behind this short. And that's kind of what I really cling on to. Yeah. The uh, one thing that I want to point out is the sound design. This is the first short film where it's really David Lynch's sound design. This is something that his films become known for. And in the later years, he is 100% behind his own sound design. So, like, when we get to Lost Highway, and especially Twin Peaks The Return, 
the sound design is is simply amazing and that is all david lynch and that's really the first taste of it you get is here in the grandmother and there's actually a lot of visual cues and visual styles that are used that he brings back in the return um it's just so try try to remember this short when we you know in a year and a half when we get to the return um I, I think this is a great short film, and it's so interesting in its bizarreness because it feels like he's throwing every trick of the book um, that he can think of because he's basically making this up as he goes along with how to make films. So the, the camera angles that Corey was talking about, the, the trick shots, he uses uh, a, uh, a technique that's very similar to Tetsuo the Iron Man, uh, that's a really famous film that uses this where you have a moving person, but you edit it to where it looks like stop motion animation of the, the people moving very stiltedly. Um, that's used a lot in here. And then there's the actual animation. This is just this is amazing. This is an amazing short film. And it's it's worth watching all of these shorts just to get to this. But you can even just go straight to this. You know, it's not part of a longer movie or anything. Yeah. <sighs> the the last thing that I would want to mention is like I like how this film centers everything around the bag. Um, the bed we see the boy sleeping in the bag, getting dressed around the bag, and like he at those points he seems to be free from his abuse. He's very he seems to be uh, as happy as he can be, and then he grows the grandmother from a different bag. Um. And like that one, he seems to not want to taint with anything, uh, like not with his parents, not with his uh, wedding the bag or anything, because that is like the one place where he knows love. And this is this is the place where he goes to to receive love. Um, but as you also see um, his father putting his face into the bag uh, as a way to shame him. So, like, the bag, every bag in the movie is, like, the uh, point of happiness, of um, uh, reprieve, and of the worst of uh, what he ever experiences. Like, I think that is a very uh, good thematic through line. Yeah. Chris, anything else? Um, I mean, I would just want to echo that this is the best, the best of the bunch and obviously the longest, but at only a half hour, you owe it to to, to watch this. And there, there's, yeah, and I think as we go through the rest of um, David Lynch's filmography, I think we'll probably be revisiting this and saying, you know, he did this first. We saw we first saw this in The Grandmother. Um, I suspect we'll be going back um, from time to time as we, as we work through his catalog. Mm-hmm. All right. Moving along, then we jump from 1970 all the way to 1974, just to set the stage, he's already making Eraserhead. It took him five years to finish making Eraserhead because he got he made it with grant money from the AFI, which is the school that he was attending in Los Angeles at the time. And so he would be able to raise some money from the school or you know from a job that he was working, film for like a week. And then he would have to save money and try to get more grants. So it took him five years to make Eraserhead. This short film was made right smack dab in the middle of it, and that is The Amputee. The Amputee stars David Lynch himself as a doctor and Catherine Coulson, who is most famous to the world from Twin Peaks as the log lady. 
she plays the amputee. The short film is the log lady sitting there in a chair with her two stump legs as she writes a letter to her sister or her friend or some some woman that she knows about a relationship with a man. While she is writing this letter, we hear the voiceover narration of the letter she's writing. A doctor of some sort, played by David Lynch, comes in and starts changing the dressing on one of her stump legs. And he's digging around in there trying to clean it up. And he does something horribly wrong and it starts gushing pus and bile. And it's very, very fucking disgusting. Uh, Chris, take it away. Yeah, it is... um quite the juxta- yeah quite the juxtaposition between the cleaning of this wound and just the dialogue basically she's vocalizing you're, you're hearing her write the letter it's, you know, she's just vocalizing what she's writing um and it's weird like i watched both both versions um and i kept go and it kept making it was almost intentionally making it hard for you to focus on what she was saying um because of the activity with the cleaning of the the stump um and um i think like it's hard to describe it's just it's very like this is um, he's it's weird because this feels like it's an art school almost like an art school uh short film where you, you know you basically are set a camera up film the thing um um kind of get your um ideas out there but um the idea i kind of got out of this is this is just you know this is like a surrealistic painting um just set to a four and a half minute film um she's writing a letter just you know it's not an innocuous letter uh, but i think overall it's pretty mundane but at the same time there's just this gruesome activity going on where (laughs) you know that's diverting your attention from everything else um even though in reality probably what she's um, writing is of much more significance to her life than what we're watching and what our eyes are going to and kind of what we're thinking about as we watch it. Corey? Yeah, um, this was probably my least favorite one of the ones that we watched. Um, I liked your take on it, Chris, for the, from your letterbox review that like the because it is so uh, absurd and juxtaposed of the seriousness or seeming seriousness of the letter compared to the blood literally gushing onto the letter, and she seems unperturbed by this. Um, that was uh, weird as hell. Wow. <laughs> really, all I got for this one. Yeah. So one of the things, real quick. Um, is the definition of what is Lynchian. A lot of people have very different ideas of what Lynchian means, but hopefully, you know, everybody will see eye to eye on this when we get to the end of his filmography. What I believe to be the truest, most Lynchian concept is what basically what he makes every single film about, and that's the juxtaposition between the good and the light in this world and the dark and the evil in this world. Um, it becomes most apparent when we get to Twin Peaks. Like That's literally like the point of the name, Twin Peaks. Um, every, everything is about duality. And in this short film, like that's exactly it. We, we're seeing... We, you're, you hit the nail on the head uh, of something that I wanted to make sure I mentioned, Chris, about how you can't focus on what she's saying because of the actions that are going on. And I think... I think that that itself 
is the point and purpose of the short film is David Lynch is showing us that, you know, the sex and the violence, the grotesqueness, the ugliness of the world is inherently more interesting to us than anything powerful or meaningful uh, to someone's personal life. And we see that in our everyday lives with the news and with a lot of movies and media that exist out there. Everything is always about getting our attention and what gets our attention better than sex and violence. Nothing. Um, and I, so I, I really, I think like that was the point that he was driving at here. And also I feel like a part of me feels like this was a makeup test for a scene in Eraserhead. Um, hopefully we'll, everybody will know what scene I'm talking about when we watch it. I don't know. Has anyone seen Eraserhead before? Nope. Chris? Um, I do. I don't think I've seen it now. Okay. Probably, there, there's I probably remember if I have. Okay, there is a scene in Eraserhead that I feel that this was kind of like a makeup test for. Um, and so it's working on like those multiple levels. This is also my least favorite of the bunch just because, I don't know, it's so short. It's two minutes long, and it's it's really kind of there for me. One thing that I want to add real quick is when I was watching this last night, my wife Kate, she <laughs> She was in the room with me when I was watching this one, and she was just like, oh, my God, Lynch, we get it. They're both digging into a festering open wound. Because <laughs> <laughs> if, if you are able to pay attention to the letter, basically it's, it's about a relationship's gone awry, and the letter she's writing is digging and poking at this woman she's writing to. So it's like the, the words that she's writing are pestering a festering wound, which is about this relationship, this you know threesome of some sorts, this triangle of love. And she just keeps poking that bear while he's sitting there poking the bear. And if you fucking poke that bear enough, you're going to rupture something, and it's going to be very gross, and everything's just going to be horrible. Like, that's the, the narrative... Uh, duality that he's playing with there which i think is really funny i didn't even really like think about that because i have a really hard time focusing on what she's saying um the the difference between the two versions like some of the 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 words that she says in the second version she says a lot less and some of the sentences are a bit different but the biggest difference that i find i actually find very amusing is the sound effects in version two um the sound effects for when the blood starts gushing are much more gross. Like they're louder and they're squishier. So when you're watching the second version, it just, it feels a little bit more repulsive because of the sound effects. Goddamn David Lynch and that sound design. I tell you what. All right. So that's, that's it for all of his early short films. The next thing that he would make is Eraserhead in 1977. So we're going to jump ahead to 1995 uh, with his short film, Premonitions Following an Evil Deed. Just to give background on this, he made this short film for a collection called Lumiere and Company. It was for the 100th anniversary of the Lumiere Brothers' patented camera. Uh, the Lumiere Brothers were a French duo who basically created the first real movie camera, and a whole bunch of different filmmakers were given a, a genuine, authentic Lumiere camera and 
given enough film to make a one minute short and and so everybody just had free reign this is david lynch's entry into that i've seen a couple of the other shorts but i haven't seen all of them i need to find the actual film and sit down and actually watch the film to see everything but of course lynch's would be the most interesting one chris why don't you try and explain what's going on in this one minute short okay so um the way i kind of interpreted it is that the title is telling us kind of um what's going on it, it's explaining the, the the premise which um basically the idea of an evil deed in this case um it looks like the evil deed is the killing someone um or, or someone or something that leads to someone's death um and kind of the premonitions following it um which is maybe what goes through the head of the perpetrator, like almost. I, I, one, I almost want to say it's almost guilt at the like guilt or um, the conscience, kind of saying, "Hey, here's what's going to happen." Because there, there's there's it, it's quick, um, but the the scene that'll kind of stick with you and it's very powerful is the very end. It looks like the basically the family of the victim are being informed by the police you know hey you know your so-and-so is your your son is is missing or, or we found your son dead or, or something but while that is going on there's this just incredible shadowy figure in the window that's like haunting um and i think that uh that's the image that stuck with me from this very like just very good use of um the full the full range of these screen that the camera was able the full range of the area that the camera was able to um film in um and i think that is just a message from like a message to the um perpetrator like hey you know or anybody who's in the process of considering an act of violence against someone else like just know that this isn't the only victim and you're going to have to be exposed to them in some way or another. Um, and here's the fact that you're going to be forever being forced to haunt them, um, by lurking in the shadows, um, of their lives forever. And I've, you know, I don't want to say it's, it's morality. It's, I don't, I don't want to say he's approaching a, a stance on morality. Um, but to me, it feels like David Lynch kind of coming to coming up with, the re reaction of someone who has maybe wronged someone um and that realization after the fact of the things i wish i knew before i did this and premonitions following an evil deed is explaining what he's what you hopefully see before you do an evil deed so you don't do it or but obviously this is following the evil deed so this is <laughs> what happens after you do it um, and all the things that go to you go through your head, like the guilt and the conscience kicking in. I would like to just remind the audience listening to this. This short is one minute long, 60 seconds. 52 all, seconds was the 52. limit for the camera. Yeah. 52. The, the, <laughs> all of that from 52 seconds. Praise be to David Lynch. Yeah, you can uh, watch the movie fast and then you can describe it. <laughs> Corey, what do you think about uh, yeah, I thought this one was pretty good. Um, I uh, I agree with everything that Chris was saying. I don't really have anything to add, <laughs> add to those thoughts. Um, 
but yeah, it was it was interesting and like extremely extremely moog setting. Like you knew exactly, uh, even if you couldn't follow it the first time, what was going on, you could just kind of feel what was going on by uh, by the way everything was going on, or by the way by what like, everything that was happening on the screen. Um, but yeah, it was uh, it was a mood. It was a mood. <laughs> yeah, my, my interpretation of it. Uh, is is pretty close to what Chris was discussing. I feel um, so. I don't know. Like there's there's probably a phrase for this, and I can't think of the the phrasing pro- right now. But when when a family member dies, you kind of get the the surviving family member, like especially a parent, you'll get this sick feeling. You'll get this. Oh no, something happened to this person. And that's that's what I think the short is, is the start of it is kind of the cops finding the dead person. And then there's two ladies and I don't understand what's going on there. But then when we see the spaceship with the naked woman being whipped inside of a tube by aliens, I think that is the visual representation of the premonition that the the mother is having that that gut feeling of, oh, no, something horrible has happened to my daughter and then when the cop knocks on the door there's they just kind of stand there and that's the looming figure is that that oh no i was right um which it's it's interesting to to mention this because uh this was made in 1995 so this is after twin peaks it's a, a it invokes a very similar feeling to me as the opening scenes um, in the pilot episode of Twin Peaks. So put that in your back pocket. Um, <laughs> but it, th- this one comes with the extra benefit of giving us, you know, some bizarre and surreal and absurd visual taste of what that premonition, what that gut feeling uh, could possibly look like. And apparently it's naked women being whipped in tubes by aliens or whatever the fuck was happening. It's amazing. And that's it. Yay, that's all seven short films that we watched. Give yourself a round of applause. Hooray. He's got many other short films, I know, but are we going to go through more? No, I, no. I wasn't planning on it. Yeah, I um, think this is a good... I think doing the shorts leading up to Eraserhead was, was definitely a good way to get an understanding of his growth as a as a filmmaker into Eraserhead. And then Premonition following an Evil Deed was... was so much to talk about in 50 tits wow are a lot of them like even available they're basically all on youtube you can you can search david lynch short film and they got playlist after playlist after playlist you can just (laughs) lose yourself in watching every single short film i did for like three days straight next prize no (laughs) um the only the only thing that i was thinking about adding in that would be from his shorts is so when we were talking about the alphabet, Corey was mentioning a lot about uh, his animation and wanting to see what he does with animation. Unfortunately, that that basically is it. He only did one other truly animated project, and that is in like 2002. He did a series of shorts called Dumbland, which is uh, it was on Criterion at one point i think it still is i'm not entirely sure but it's on youtube if it's not um so i I think it's like maybe half an hour to an hour total in length 
Um, that's the only other like full animation project that he did. So if you're interested, when we get to 2002 ish after Mulholland drive, we can, we can watch those shorts just so you can get his animation, some more Lynch animation in. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I'd be interested in that. Um, yeah. Like basically I want to see, <laughs> obviously I want to see like if, uh, Lynch was given the, uh, freedom and the, uh, the money to make it to make an anime movie like Satoshi Kon, what would come out of it? You know, basically, I think Satoshi Kon is the best idea of what we would get if, from a David Lynch anime yeah. film. But yeah, no, that would be amazing. Like, oh my god, I oh. Anyway, so let's go ahead and 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 wrap this this section up. Uh, next month, we are going to be talking about his first film, Eraserhead. So I'm very excited for that. That is available from Criterion and on the Criterion channel for anyone who's listening uh, want to, to watch along with us. So where can we find everybody on the internet? Chris? I am on Twitter at Antonius Pius. Um, that's basically it. Chris? I am on Twitter at Gokufi. You can also find me on YouTube with my YouTube channel Cup of Night cups of night films um basically right now i'm just going through doing a video series where i talk about what's on my shelf uh, and, and give quick short little reviews about random movies and tv series that i pull off of my shelf and that's pretty much it Thanks. oh you can also find me on letterbox that's the important one <laughs> if you want to talk about movies come over to Letterboxd. I'm also over there at GoKoofy. Alright, let's take a short break, and I'll be back on the other side to talk about a webcomic, DPS only, with Helen. We're back. Helen has joined me. Ayo. I made Corey read a thing again. Yes. This is always how it works. Um, we're here to talk about DPS only, a webcomic. Uh, only 32 chapters, issues. I don't know what you call webcomic numbers. Chapters is what I'd normally call it. Installments. Since this is published on Tapas, they are all episodes. Hmm. And I mean, like, normally when I read webcomics, I'd say pages since people normally update, like, one page at a time. But Tapas is one of those tenuous scroll websites, so whenever people upload an update, it can be, like, anywhere between one and, like, three or four pages, actually, if you were to arrange them on, like, a standard sheet of paper and print out the comic. But there are, according to Tapas, 32 episodes. We are having a bit of trouble with Tapas today, so Corey and I cannot actually really look at the webpage. <laughs> Uh, yeah, there is a, oops, something went wrong message whenever we try to go anywhere on, on here. Uh, but, Helen, how did you, uh, how did you come across DPS only? We should mention, I guess, that the, uh, artist's name is, oh no. Yeah, that's part of the problem. Hang on, let, let me, I can at least bring them up on Twitter, so. Okay, so their name is 
I'm going to try to pronounce this correctly, Xiao Tong Kong, uh, online handle Villanexi. Um, I also follow their other webcomic, Countdown to Countdown, which is how I am reading this right now. And I just follow a lot of people on Twitter and Instagram who do art. Like, I've just been into webcomics for over a decade at this point, so I just always follow a lot of people. And if you've got cool art, you know, I'll give your webcomic a try. Does not necessarily mean I'm going to enjoy it, but that's how I started this one out, um, especially since they were posting, you know, when this webcomic started. And I was like, hey, I'll give this a shot. And they're such short episodes. I'm like, okay, yeah, I dig this. I have not read anything about esports before. I'm not really big into that kind of gaming. Um, but I was drawn into this very sports anime like webcomic of a schoolgirl named Vicky Tan who lives with her older brother and he is a pro gamer. I do not mean this in a derogatory way. That is like literally his job. That is how he makes the income for the two of them. And she has also been interested in playing the same game that he does. Um, but she's been playing it kind of in secret. They've got some communication issues going on, you know, fairly normal sibling things. And so she joins a team and they enter into um, the tournament for this game. And, She's also trying to keep it a secret online that she's a girl because, like in real life, female gamers often get harassed way more than male gamers. So it's a relatively short story about, you know, secrets, friendship, and kicking each other's asses in game. So, you know, it, it's an anime. It's a sports anime, basically. Yeah, and then the core thing is really this tension between the two siblings, where the brother, as you said, does not know. A lot of these things about the sister because of communication issues, but also because he is just incredibly, incredibly dense and uh, yeah. constantly talks over her, um, just assuming things about her. Like one of the uh, funnier, minor things is that he is under the impression that she loves mackerel. This is not the case at all. Yeah, I really wonder how that misunderstanding started because <laughs> that one clearly started long before the comic did. Yeah, but, but it sounds like she just really hates him. Like, how did that one start? And I can forgive Virgil, the older brother, for having some communication issues with her. I'm guessing he's only in his early 20s, if that. They seem pretty close together in age. Mm -hmm. And they came from a family which um, their father, I think we, we can say, was abusive towards Virgil. And so a lot of his motivation was, I need to find a way to keep Vicky safe. And I feel like that's definitely made him a little more on edge. You know, I don't want my sister to go through what I did at the hands of anybody. Yeah. And like he knows or he is familiar with the kind of abuse that women can experience at uh, being in gaming and being at gaming cons. Um, but despite this, like he he brings her there. She, he thinks she's safe. And like sometimes she gets kind of creepy guys uh, talking to her. We don't. I don't think, at the gaming cons at least, we don't really see that that many times, but, like, we see it outside of there, and uh, one of the earlier moments when she meets her friend, whose name I don't remember. She's on a team of two people, and I can remember the names of one of the people, but not the other friend. Yeah, it's uh, Opal and yeah, someone Thomas else. Tapas is messing up our plans for this web, for this podcast recording today. Yep. Uh, but, yeah, this, this is a guy friend, and he is obviously... Uh, bigger in size than, than yeah he's um like virgil's age he used to yeah. be on the same team so virgil is like why is this slightly older man hanging out around my teenage sister this is not cool yeah. but then he's also not willing to listen to vicky saying no this actually is fine i met him through the cafe he runs that i go to it's a it's a 
computer cafe. Yeah. We never really had those in America, so I don't actually know what you really call them in English. But she's like, it's okay, he's cool, he is not being a creep, I swear. Yeah, those kind of... like... The kind of net cafes that we see in anime and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, and like... And Virgil when, also knows how to hold the other member of Vicky's three-person team is her childhood friend, Opal. And they were good friends when they were kids, but then... Um, I, I think Vicky got, like, hurt in a fight with, with her and Opal against, like, some local childhood bullies. And Virgil's always blamed Opal for this, and he's never been really willing to re-examine that incident and see, oh, was I being too harsh on her? They worked as kids. You know, is this justified, etc. And so all this also plays into why Vicky is hiding her newfound esports burgeoning career from her brother because he doesn't even like her teammates this would be really really awkward to tell him now neither of the teammates because of the various reasons like yeah um and she he like complete or constantly says that she is not interested in gaming at all for some reason which, and like doesn't which know is kind anything of funny since she is like officially like his like social media manager and basically it's yeah. like if you say your sister's not even interested in it, then dude, like, why are you paying her to be your social media manager or anything? And doesn't even know anything about the game, which he plays. Which, like, I don't know how dense you could be if you're a social media manager for someone who plays this game and not know anything about the game after so many years. I mean, listen, I don't like football, but even I have seen enough football on to gain through osmosis some of the details of football. Mm-hmm. So I'm assuming that anyone who is, like the social media manager for their brother's sports career would pick up at least some details of the game. Yep. Especially since this one seems to be a fairly straightforward three-on-three team's uh, fight to the last character standing. <laughs> yeah, it seems to be kind of Overwatch-based, uh, or Overwatch-inspired, maybe. Um, and that's, that's the game that I play the most that has that kind of setup. I also played some Team Fortress 2, which has kind of that setup, but it can be as many as... Gosh, what was it like? Fifteen versus fifteen in Team Fortress 2, so it was way more chaotic and uh, probably less skill-based. Um, but like Overwatch is, what is Overwatch six on six, so that's uh, that can be a lot of skill-based, but it's still chaotic enough where you can just kind of beat everybody up and luck into a win sometimes without needing any communication. But yeah, three v three makes sense that like you really want to have. Uh, those headphones on, the microphones on, so you can talk to your teammates and be like, no, I'm dying, please help me. <laughs> oh, and since I actually did not know what the title stood for when I started reading this, DPS only, it's Damage Per Second Only, which is Vicky's role in the team. She is the damage getter, and her two friends are the support in the tank, basically. Yeah. And that's another thing about the comic that it brings up a lot. Like, she play Vicky plays uh, DPS, but that's, like... A lot of sexists that play the game are like, well, a woman shouldn't play DPS, a woman should play support. So that's another reason why she wants to hide her identity, just because she doesn't want to be targeted, not only for being a woman, but also just because she is very good at playing this role. And if she ever loses or missteps at any point, they're just going to use the fact that she is a woman to say that she is bad at it. Yep, so instead she is pretending to be basically a teenage boy, because she can, like, sort of make her voice sound like awkward teenage boy in puberty. Mm-hmm. And when she's playing the game, she's got, like, first she's got, like, sunglasses on, and then she gets a cool mask, because, again, this is a sports anime. Yeah. And she'll have, like, one of those little, like, COVID-appropriate face masks on, etc. So, yeah, it, this was a pretty short comic, Corey. I think you read it in, like, three hours or something along those lines. Yep. 
I read it over the course of like 30 weeks because I was following it weekly. <laughs> but yeah, this was definitely a fun, fun little adventure. Felt like it was paced pretty well. It didn't go longer than it needed to, etc. And we wanted to get out an episode on this reasonably quickly because uh, one of the things about how Tapas works is that I've read a couple of webcomics on there. And for the ones I've read that it's finished, a lot of time after that they'll go to like the like the opposite of crunch rule. The first four episodes will be free and then you have to pay to unlock everything after that. So it's been a while since I've tried to use Tapas's coin system, so I don't remember if these are coins you can get for free or if you explicitly have to pay for them. And that honestly is a system about Tapas I'm not as fond of. I kind of like their competitor Webtoon a lot more since they do more along the lines of Crunchyroll, which is free episodes first, and if you pay more, you can read ahead. But those episodes will be eventually released to free readers later on. I kind of like that better since I just have a really hard time recommending things for people to read and watch where you have to pay for it from the get-go. I'm always such a big proponent of Crunchyroll gives you like a seven-day free trial or you can go check this out from your library. It's a lot harder for me to recommend than people, even if in this particular case, like four episodes free out of 30, it's going to give you a much better sense for the comic than if it was like four episodes free out of like, gosh, like a hundred chapters or something. Yeah. Yeah. Trials are very useful uh, for, for trying things out, obviously. So Topaz doesn't have a trial, right? As far as I know, it doesn't. I okay. I think I have a Topaz account. I just never sign into it because I always forget my password. So I'm just, <laughs> relying on my RSS to keep up with all of my many webcomics as they update. Mm. Oh, that makes sense. Um, oh, yeah. also, Tapas is dick, and they make it really hard to find the RSS feeds for comics. Like, they do actually possess RSS feeds for each of their comics. If you go on, again, say Webtoon, they have, like, a little icon where you can get the URL from it easily to plug into um, whichever RSS aggregator you use. But for Tapas, every single time I do this, I have to open up my aggregator, pull out a URL I use for another comic, so I have like the general setup of like tapas.io slash series slash something, and then I have to go into the source code for the page and scroll down until I find like their internal um, identifier number for each comic, and then combine that with the URL I already have to do this. And like, I know many people would not go to this much trouble, but guys, I read a lot of web comics. I, if I do not have this in an RSS, I cannot remember to read them. <laughs> but I'm really annoyed that Tabas has made this deliberately difficult to find an RSS feed that they definitely have. I think it's in an effort to force people to try and use their own native app more. But mm. no, I'm yeah. also trying to remember. I think there was some issues with Tabas a year more than a year ago, like a couple years ago now, I think that had to do with like creator payments or something like that. Just always something to be aware of that we live in a capitalist society that is unfair to everyone, etc., etc. Yep. Uh, yeah, at least in my user experience from reading one comic in one day or in three <laughs> hours, it was it was pretty nice. Um, I find the format pretty interesting too. Like you oh, just the continuous scroll thing. Yeah, you just scroll through it. It's not uh, traditional pages. Uh, usually, my thankfully my monitor is large enough. Uh, such that I could see the text box with who was speaking, uh, unless I accidentally scrolled past and didn't feel like scrolling back. <laughs> but that was my own uh, deficiency, not the comics deficiency. Um, and I found it like a very easy way to read through. You know, th these are like I would say jump length comics, maybe f 13 to 15 pages uh, per chapter. Honestly, so they felt even shorter than 
even shorter than that to me. Yeah. Maybe I'm uh, overestimating, but that's the impression that I got when I was reading it. Um, scrolling through, clicking next, very easy. Uh, very easy user interface, and very nice, I would say. Yeah, I remember when we've read some comics on like Manga Plus, which also employs continuous scroll, but for actual manga pages, then sometimes you have to do a lot of scrolling back and forth because the pages just aren't laid out for that format. Mm-hmm. But for something like this, where the folks know from the beginning it's going to be continuous scroll, then it reads much more easily. Yeah. I think we mentioned on the Manga Plus episode, like, they have double-page regs, like they do sometimes in manga, but I couldn't, like, flip my iPad <laughs> such that I could read it like that. It would just make it a thicker continuous scroll or whatever, which seemed not useful, but there's none of that in this one. Um, yeah. I like this one a lot. Uh, the, uh, um, the fact that, like, the parents were so bad to the point that, uh, what was Vicky's brother's name? Virgil. Virgil. Virgil adopted Vicky at 18, so they can Wait, get away. I think it's Virgil. Vir- Virgil's either her brother's name or her friend's name, but I'm pretty sure it's her brother's name. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's her brother's name, because Virgil and Vicky sound like a sibling kind of thing. Yeah, and, and I know that they've got something similar going on if they're gamer handles, which are like Aegeus and Aeneid. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I found that very interesting that like the brother now is the legal parent of Vicky, which just added more to this dynamic of brother-sister, um, him being domineering and, like, eventually to the point of her, like, breaking down and yelling that he was, like, their father, which was obviously very hurtful. But got the uh, emotional clash between those two was uh, built really well, I think, and uh, led to a satisfying ending. I mean, like, it was, like, the whole ending of the comic is the ending of that arc, obviously. It's not that long. Yeah, I, th- I think the creator made a smart move to keep this as a relatively short comic, you know, not try to drag anything out. Mm-hmm. And a lot of this is Vicky's journey both into the gaming world and into having a better relationship with those around her. Yeah. Since you get the impression she didn't really have friends before the series started, but now she's been able to open up to her teammates more and become genuinely friends with them, friends again in Opal's case, etc. So... It seems that gaming was actually good for once for Vicky's life. <laughs> yeah, uh, and like the I guess the last thing that I rem- the re- I remember that was really cute was when they were playing against I forget the team name but like the one of the women on the other team was one of the most famous and very good women gamers and they met each other in the restroom after Vicky had defeated them and um you and at this point like they still think that Vicky is a male, and so she's just waltzing into the female restroom, and she sees this player, and they have this heartfelt moment between each other that's like, you know, being a woman in gaming really sucks sometimes, doesn't it? I should have worn a mask, uh, but I didn't, and now it really sucks. Like, like I liked uh, that she was able to have this physical role model instead of just being an example for everyone, I guess. Yeah, and there was a moment shortly before that where the two teens had met afterwards, and I think it was Opal saying, oh yeah, my friend, um, over here, he's a really big fan of you, and the female player's thinking to herself mentally, oh god, he's gonna have a crush on me, and instead Vicky's <laughs> like, no, I've admired you so much, and the other player's like, oh, that's cute, actually, that's yeah. fine. <laughs> yeah, I like the moments between those two teams. I wish there was a little more time to be able to spend with some of these other teams, because they seemed really cool, but um, That is also a sentiment common to sports anime. True, true. When is the girls' haiku volleyball team anime God, the question we always ask. <laughs> uh, but yeah, 
That's all I have. Do you have anything else before we uh, close out? I like the art, too. Uh, it's nothing... Ah, I don't want to sound dismissive. It, it's just... Um, it, it doesn't do anything that is like that I would gush over a ton. It's not like super detailed or super extravagant, etc. But I like the way that this creator uses lines, uses large blocks of color, etc. I thought the art was very nice. Yeah, I think it's super solid. Um, and I think there's like a cartoony enough differentiation differentiation between the players that are players the characters they are playing and the uh characters that we are following in the story um to the point where like i i mean i always talk about this in our manga podcast but i have a lot of trouble with the black and white sometimes differentiating characters if the artist is not that good and obviously this was in color but like there i can, I can have any trouble and it's really good so a strong showing all around we recommend uh and hopefully Tapas's website is working by the time we post this podcast so people can actually check out. <laughs> However, I, I think it's going to be the first four chapters. I'll still be free for people to check out. That's good. Yeah, but I would say this is... I don't know how you pay for stuff on Tapas since I read it all for free, but I would say it's worth it to however much you guys can check this out. Hopefully it's only a couple bucks. If it's like 30 bucks. If it's like a... <laughs> I think, think Tapas's like, insight currency is called Inc., and I'm just not sure what the conversion is between ink and mm. U.S. dollars. Yeah, but if you're buying this for like the cost of a trade, then I'd say that's definitely worth it. Mm-hmm. I would buy this as a physical trade. Yeah, I, I always hope that a lot of web comics I read become physical, just so I can have them on hand later on in case this, um, you know, in case the website goes down. And I need to although know, I know that for conti- although I know for continuous scroll web comics like this, you've got to do a lot of extra planning to shift stuff around. Yeah, like, that makes sense. I follow one webcomic on Webtoons called Space Boy, and that one comes out in physical pretty quickly, but I think he also plans from the start how to lay out the panels both in scroll and in book form. But another webcomic I read over there, um, Always Human, um, that one, it, it took a while for them to like rearrange everything since that was not a consideration when it was being first published. Mm. Well, the perils of webcomicking, I guess. Yep, there are men. Yeah. All right. Well, let's close this section out. Where can we find you on the internet, Helen? Uh, well, you can occasionally find me crashing this podcast, um, but otherwise, you can find me in the other podcast I give us at Corey and our friend April, which is at Manga in Your Ears. And you can also find me on my own account on Twitter, at Wander Dreamer. And you can find me uh, over at the OASG, where I do manga, light novel, and very, very occasionally anime reviews over there. I- I'm behind on my reviews, but I am working on catching up on that, and I'm also on the OASG podcast. Alright, uh, let's take a second break. I'll be back with Ink to talk about Kakiguri. <laughs> We are back, and Ink has joined us. Hi! We are here to talk about the gambling anime, Kakigurui. Uh, this is uh, originally a manga series by Homura Kawamoto, uh, illustrated by Toru 
Naomura, which I have not read. Um, but the anime is on Netflix. Both seasons that are out uh, are on Netflix. There is apparently a film uh, that's also a live-action film. Um, as you pointed out before we started recording, uh, there is also a live-action series that is on Netflix as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, would you like to do the honors of introducing Kakuguri, or shall I? Uh, you can go ahead. I've got none of the names in front of me, so I would... <laughs> I, I opened the Wikipedia in preparation instead of uh, furiously Googling Kakaguri while I talked, like usual. <laughs> uh, I, could a, I could give a basic premise without the specific <laughs> names. <laughs> well, uh, I'll do my best. Um, Kakaguri is about this second-year transfer student, Javami Yimiko, who has entered Yako Private Academy, which is a... Um, uh, a school for rich people where they gamble um, absurd amounts of money, and their standing in the school is basically determined by uh, how good they are at gambling, including a point where uh, if they become so far in debt, they become house pet slaves to the uh, to the rest of the student body. And it's like a, a rule that these house pets have to be treated poorly, um, but, but as is pointed out later, there is no rule against treating them like normal people. <laughs> um, but what, what uh, Yumiko does in this series is enters uh, enters this private academy, um, meets up with a few other people, including Suzui Ryota and Saotome Mary, who um, Suzui was a house pet himself at some point, but he bought himself out of deck and Mary became a house pack as a result of gambling with Yumiko. Um, so the poll is just uh, Yumiko putting a wrench into basically everyone's plans, I guess. Uh, and um, she is also addicted to gambling. And she, uh, the anime uh, depicts it quite hornily. But uh, what, what do you think of the series? It's a very thirsty show. Yeah. What do you think of the series, Inc.? Uh, you know, I, I went back because I, I remembered it a little more harshly than I found it initially. So I went back and I had a, I wrote, I originally actually watched this show for, for a feature in Otaki USA magazine. And so I went back and read my own review and I was like, Oh, Hey, I didn't hate this originally, <laughs> but I remembered it with lots of, you know, Oh, this isn't Kaiji. Fuck this show. <laughs> <laughs> it's not supposed to be Kaiji. Um, it's a different sort of thing. It's, it's, as you mentioned, the school is, you know, all these kids who are, you know, if they fall into debt, then it's kind of a hopeless matter thereafter. They're always the uh, the toadstools, uh, cats or dogs, pets for the uh, people who own them via gambling. And, uh, you know, the whole thing is just a, a metaphor for capitalism. Yeah. Uh, the, the school, uh, and it's actually kind of a muddled metaphor because the, the kids there don't actually have the money. It's the parents who have the money. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're just, kids are kind of welching off their parents and using their money for the, to use their own gambling skills. Uh, so, isn't that like the peak of wealth? Though? Pretty much. I mean, it's very exemplary, but it's not, uh, it's, it's not a, a true sort of trickle-down thing. But um, the Whereas Kaiji is like an underdog facing a personal struggle all throughout what you have in Kakuguri with, uh, I keep forgetting the main character's name. Yumiko. Yumiko. Uh, is, is this Mary Sue who cannot fail unless she wants to. She's yeah. supposedly got all the money, 
but I have doubts about that because we'll, we don't get the full story with this, I don't think. Um, and she's got mad talent and mad amount of luck. And you combine all those three, and you're like, there's really no risk in the gambling she loves, which I still find very conflicting while I was watching the series. Like I could mm. care less about how everything progressed. It's just kind of watching everybody be nuts. Yeah, this is um, maybe I have not watched Baki the Grappler, but it's perhaps closer to Baki than it is to something like Kaiji. In fact, uh, the main uh, in the ridiculous ridiculousness of it, and uh, closer to something maybe like Naruto or Bleach, where the uh, the main character is it feels kind of invincible like throughout the series i worried about the whatever situation Emiko was getting herself into but i was never uh there was never an equivalent of mortal peril you know yeah and that, what i loved her her sidekick the boy she rescues and likes because he showed her around first day you know self-insert for the male character yeah. um <laughs> surrounded by all of these uh high school girls who are not exactly. not really into him uh, thankfully, or maybe some of them are. I, I don't know, but uh, I would say thankfully, honestly, it's yeah. nice to see all the all the other characters not fawning over this dude and him just sort of being a crutch for Yumiko. Uh, that's cool. Yeah, I, I dig that. Uh, but you always have um, as the sort of dissent, dissenting voice to Yumiko's uh, compulsory gambling instinct. You always have the milk toast uh, male protagonist going. Are you really sure you want to do this? <laughs> it's like, dude, you lost all your money, and she saved your ass, and she's like kicking ass in the games. J- you know, just stop, yeah, stop mansplaining the the gambling to the gambling master there. Yeah, the the it's alternative cool. to that is that you do get Mary, um, who acts as kind of a foil to Yumiko, and like she is. I mean, they're both good at gambling, but um, Mary doesn't have the same kind of luck evidence that she lost to Yumiko mm-hmm. in the first gamble. But she kind of won her position back through gambling as well. So um, Yumiko kind of intentionally loses her position and keeps herself in that w- position because she want like, there's a special rule where a house peg is able to challenge a student council member. She wants to have that uh, right, even though she has the money to buy herself out of debt. She's just um, a very interesting power structure that she <laughs> leaves herself in. Well, she she uses the loopholes, which is yeah. you know a fantastic parallel to you know capitalistic <laughs> systems. You know she's she there is one right that the empowered don't have that the uh, the enslaved have, mm-hmm. and that's that one ability to challenge. And she's like, no, nah, no, nah, I want that because then I can challenge whichever council member, and they're like the ultimate crazy gamblers. They're 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 the monsters of the week, and uh, you know it's a lot of fun to watch them play. Uh, just just because of the faces and because of the outright <laughs> ridiculous schemes behind some of these games. Yeah, the first game is, you know, Yumiko and Mary, they're playing a game of rock, paper, scissors, quote-unquote rock, paper, scissors, where they pick out a uh, series of rocks, papers, and scissors from a box that all of the students in their class put into it, but Mary's kind of rigged the game, so there is over 50% of, I forget which one, but one of them, so she has a pretty safe play of whatever she plays. But Yumiko keys into this, and that's kind of the uh, the recurring thing. Is like someone's cheating, Yumiko keys into what what they're cheating. Uh, I mean, how they're cheating, not what they're cheating. They're cheating at the game, um, and she kind of turns that back 
on them, and she starts to uh, beat down the student council back to uh, some level where they are um, comparable to just normal people instead of crazy good gamblers. And as it turns out, they're they're maybe not crazy good gamblers. They're just cheating, <laughs> cheating enough that uh, they win enough games to become part of the student council. And something I liked that you said previously was about how uh, Yumiko is basically this wrench thrown into the system. Yeah. And she is. She's just a big ball of chaos because she's not adherent to the same values that the uh, rich kids are. Mm. She basically is, you know, as in love with gamb- gambling as the rest of them, but she's in it for the purity of the gambling. She's in it for the risks. She's in it for the rush. Yeah. And uh, she's willing to take whatever comes her way, like win or lose. It's it's that she gets to play the game. <laughs> like That's the whole thing behind her. And that throws a direct wrench into everybody's plans. And it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful analogy for, you know, how people can just upset the system, uh, even though at the end it's basically the system deciding to ruin itself <laughs> you know it's, it's the only unbelievable resolution of the anime that I, I didn't like it was like oh look at the top just sort of agreeing with the uh the destructor bottom it's like nah <laughs> those in power are just gonna want to stay in power yep yeah and there's really no mechanic in which uh the student council can lose their position, except for this, the second season is entire student council, council quote-unquote election, where each each person has one vote, um, and that vote is used as a gambling chip, like a literal chip, to put it to box. Um, you can also gamble with hours of service to the student council as well, so that's how people start to just gain all of these votes. Um, so... I think it's, like, deliberately put there by the uh, president of the student council because she wants to kind of bring uh, Yumiko down to size, but uh, because Yumiko is such an unpredictable entity, they they don't know what she's going to do in this case. And she kind of unites all her fellow weirdos uh, as friends for the first time because everybody in the school is a competitor. So you get this, you get the feeling that no one is really friends at the school. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a, a fun, congenial ad, uh, air about the place. <laughs> and uh, when I think Mary and Yumiko become, or Yumiko asks Mary to be her friend for the first time, Mary's just like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <a> friend. <laughs> they, they don't understand the idea of relationships as something other than utilitarian to uh, yeah. to each other exactly but I, I like i like this i like the structures that this this show came up with not only for the the variants on the games but like you mentioned the some of the school structures and uh, uh means by which consequences take place and it's just it's a fun world to get mm-hmm. to know yeah it is an interesting uh an interesting place to jump into because you like the stakes for these kids are uh, basically nothing. They're gambling with their parents' money. They're gambling with house money, I guess, literally. Uh, but like, they know that they're going to be lost in the in social status if they lose any significant amount of money. Um, and I guess that's kind of the uh, the ongoing metaphor in the capitalism or this capitalist society. Mini capitalist society is where uh, they. Um, will lose to a certain someone, and that is that kind of, like, uh, 
literal deck and also metaphorical deck to that person, so they can't do anything unless the other person says so, right? Not to mention movement within a class-based society based on socioeconomic status, because when you lose to a person, yeah, you might be a mittens or a fido for the rest of the uh, school term or whatever, but I think that stops there. But if you amass a larger amount of debt and challenge the student council to games and build up such massive debt with them, they literally own you and own everything you can be for mm-hmm. the rest of your life by writing out your own life plan and basically selling you off <laughs> to be <laughs> someone's house housemate for yeah. them, you know. And it can work out for you. You wouldn't have to pay a bill for the rest of your life, but you'd be married to the the Lolicon and uh, you know, or whatever. And you know, he has this prominent role in society, and you're his wife now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's one of the things that the the biggest thing they can gamble is like that liberal life plan. And they, uh, based on their standing, their uh, or based on their parents' standing, they're given a estimate of a life plan. So like. At the Yang of the first season, they're saying that someone is worth three billion or whatever it was, just because they're the son of a prominent diplomat or whatever it was. So um, now the stakes are uh, much larger. Like they're not just giving away um, this idea of money, and like we don't, uh, we as the audience don't really have an an idea of what money means to these characters either. Uh, I mean, yeah, it's obviously important because. Um, we live in a society where money is important, but we don't know to what level that like one million dollars or one billion dollars mean to lose for anybody. And that's kind of the problem. There's no consequence in any of the in any of the wagers except for you know who is underneath who. You don't get any sense of how uh, what or what degree of despair they're suffering. It's they're still in the school. They're still in their spiffy uniforms and a gorgeous you know campus. Um, the the most we get is like this flashback to some backstory where a kid is told from a very early age that he's going to be the next, say, Department of Interior head, mm-hmm. um, and you get the uh, get sort of a sense of pressure from that. Um, but again, that's all the pressure you get because when he loses in a huge way, all his money shows up later on, but. You know, there's no there's no reprimand from Daddy. There's no consequence of him getting taken out of school and put in the mines or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's just the thing that happens. Yeah, and with like the only the or the real stakes that we get here is with uh, Ikishima, one of the members of the student council with the eye patch. Um, one of the members members of the student council, comma, she is the only one with the eye patch. Uh, <laughs> But they play Russian roulette, or a modified version of Russian roulette, where you can put a certain amount of bullets into the gun, um, and then you play the rest of the Russian roulette game. And, like, there you see literal life and death stakes, and then later on you see um, a game where they have to continually cut cables until the guillotine goes down and potentially chops off their fingers. Like, those are the kinds of stakes where uh, you see that contrast between uh, Yumiko's desire to just gamble and Ikishima's desire to... Uh, th- they want different kinds of thrills from their gamble, right? Like, Ikishima wants mm. some sort of uh, uh, masochistic, psychomasochistic thing, and Yumiko just wants the the thrill of gambling at all, whatever it all means. Yeah, the, uh, there was a... a since you mentioned uh, the best character, which is uh, uh, Ikishima... Uh, 
I have to mention there there the the art in this is absolutely gorgeous um as far as characters go uh settings can be a bit bare or sparse uh empty at sp- its paces but uh the character art is wonderful and um there's this transition where Ikejima reveals ha- right before a bumper how she lost her eye and she pulls up her <laughs> eye patch and right then you do a a jump cut to uh, Yumiko's eyeball and the space where uh, ah, just had it name of character Ika something Ikejima Ikejima uh, the socket where Ikejima's eye is is now the iris in uh, or the pupil of uh, Yumiko's eye and it was just such a really good jump cut I was like damn why couldn't the rest of the show be that <laughs> yeah. I mean re- regardless the visuals on, on this are very good uh, even if they are as I mentioned earlier uh, extremely horny sometimes especially like the opening and ending animations um, they get egregiously so I would say oh, don't, um, you, don't you touch my Sayomaru OP <laughs> That is gorgeous. Exactly. Yeah, I don't know that. Yeah, yeah. No, the first one is the, the oh, last okay. one. I'm not sure who did the uh, storyboarding. It it makes sense, but um, like as we know from Woman Called Fujikomine, she can be uh, or she can make quite the horny opening in anime. Oh yeah, and not to mention the the, ah- the I'm not sure how you pronounce it, but the ha- ahego ahego mm, yeah uh, the crazy faces and used in like porn uh, are basically uh the faces on the gamblers as they win or you know get their news of their wins or loss and mm-hmm. you know they're, they're all just getting off on the the tension yeah and i guess that's the difference like some of the, some of or a lot of the characters have those kinds of faces when they win or when they lose but the difference is that like yumiko is back to normal when she wins or when she loses she is uh in that state of face when she is gambling like she lives for the thrill not for the wins mm. uh but this uh, uh i think i guess the um the more interesting part or maybe it's more interesting is that there is a a bami clan like um a whole clan of people with bami at the end and yumiko is jabami but we don't really know how that connects, or at least from the anime, we don't really know how that connects to everyone else. But there is a, a Toto Bami, a Mushi Bami, an Inbami, Yobami, like there's a lot of Bamis in this anime. And we all know they're part of the same clan, and Momo Bami is at the head, and she is also the student council president who uh, initiated this whole student council voting arc, um, which is not resolved as of the end of the second season. But uh, I f- I am always interested in the uh, the kind of like quote unquote chosen one arcs in anime and how they deal with it, you mm. know. Um, in this case, Yumiko seems to be uh, part of this Bami clan and um, some sort of some sort of very special person, but we don't really know the circumstances or why yet. Yeah, all we get is that she may be so from some branch family, some smaller, you know, deemed somewhat insignificant branch family was uh, mm-hmm. one of the comments tossed out during that arc. Yeah. I find that or yeah, I found the introduction of everyone else very interesting because just because Javami is a very uh unusual name. But then we learn that there is five million bomb Oh man, I want this show instead of being called Kakaguri to be called five million bombies. <laughs> Cause what a countdown that would make. <laughs> Uh, we don't need to make this like a the gambling version of Inuyasha. <laughs> um, 
I mean, despite all of our maybe complaints about the series, I did really enjoy watching Kakegurumi. Um, it's, it is thrilling in in the moment, even if, uh, and I don't think uh, it necessarily needs to make sense, but like even if after the fact it does not make sense at all. See, I, I got no sense of consequence out of any of the games, because even by the rules of the of, of the show, uh, where you're indentured for life and that's supposed to lead to a lot of strife, um, you know, people are constantly either saved or buy themselves out eventually uh, of the indentured uh, servitude, and you know, then every, everything's okay, and they're they're rolling against the system now, um, having been personally smited by it. And, you know, it's just sort of like, okay. So, again, there's no weight to it. And mm-hmm. I found it hard to enjoy any of the games when there was no real tension. It's just like, okay, well, it's a cool setup for a game. I really love it. But when you have uh, whoever's running the game or whoever wins the game explain, a la Sherlock, how everything worked at the end... And like everything, almost everything in the first season, I think, is like one episode games until like mm-hmm. halfway through. And then it goes, it splits like, it goes like one and a half episodes per game yeah. until the very end when it has a nice long snowball sort of thing. But uh, nothing really has uh, a drawn in tension. Uh, like I, w- I would have loved like, you know, Kaiji or Akagi, um, Chiafuru. All of which were done by Madhouse and under Maruyama, which uh, Mappa did this under Maruyama. So I, w- I was expecting a lot more of the same, uh, a lot, a lot, a lot of that good competitive gaming tension. And uh, it's really just about watching silly faces and uh, ridiculous gambling mm-hmm. setups. Yeah, I mean, I see this very much as uh, an extremely pure sports anime, like. From an outsider point of view, if you're just watching um, two NFL teams or two Major League Baseball teams or whatever, it doesn't seem like these players are playing for anything except for the wins and the losses, and that's kind of what I'm getting from Kategori. And like, I find a thrill out of seeing who wins, seeing who loses, and seeing how that happens. Um, mm-hmm. And that's what really drew me to this series as well. But um, I-, I think with another another season or two. We will kind of get those draws to why we should care about these characters, but you're right in that like it doesn't immediately delve you straight into these characters and why they matter, like uh, like Shihai does, for example. Yeah, like I just I really would really treasure a little bit, even just teases of Yumiko's backstory, um, and yeah. I think there are like a couple of flash moments where mm-hmm. we see her through other characters' eyes and like we don't know why she's visible to those other characters in those moments, which I liked. I liked that a lot, but I was like, it's, it's just not enough. And this has already been 24 episodes, and I don't know anything about the protagonist. Um, yeah, so. that's very obviously the weakest point, is that Yumiko exists as uh, some combination of Manic, Pixie, and Dream, and Girl. Um, you know more about... Uh, you know more about Mary and Suzui, and like especially the uh, the vice president of the student council, who is the twin of the president of the student council. Like you know more about that character, who we just learned about halfway through the second season or something, <laughs> than we do about the main character. And like that's a big weakness. But also, I really see Yumiko gamble more people. So 
it's a constant give and take. Yeah, like I, I love genuinely how crazy she gets when she's gambling. It's a, it's it's a great feel just to see her go nuts mm-hmm. and how she like runs up to other characters and like the the intimacy and the, the it does everything right in that regard. It really does. It's it's thoroughly enjoyable. I just uh I just want a little consequence and a little weight and a little reason uh to make it substantial. But otherwise it's a fun watch. I mean when they're when they're doing the life or death pistol swap with the dual dueling Russian roulette guns <laughs> that, that was that, that should have been like a lot more tense than it was. Yeah. But uh, you know, it's still fun for the setup. Yeah, I think at the end of the student council, um Electric Arc it's gonna be Hopefully we'll learn a lot more about Yumiko. Like we kind of gotten got hints of it. Her mom apparently uh, had a mental breakdown of some sorts, and that affected Yumiko in some way. Like I think Yumiko also didn't talk for several years or something. I it was very unclear. So is what I'm getting at. Um, but Do maybe we, by the are end we getting this. a season three? Uh, I don't know. I want a season three, obviously, but. Um, I don't think one has been confirmed. Because we did just get Kaiju on Blu-ray, so, just saying. <laughs> and the manga's out say, from Genpa. True. Uh, and I would say, if you if you enjoyed this, uh, and we're looking for opinions validating it or not, um, either way, a, a good transition to something else that you might enjoy, um, if you enjoyed this specifically, I would say go watch Akagi on Crunchyroll right now. Because that is the most between that and Kaiji, it is the most uh, gambling, weird, over-the-top game anime that you will find uh, in my in my experience. Uh, and then go to Kaiji because then it's a little more uh, personal, subs- substantive uh, drama. But uh, Akagi is a nice step in between the two. Or watch it on uh, Crunchymation, as it may be. Crunchymation, yeah. <laughs> Topical. It was just announced five minutes ago. Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, anyway, shall we uh, continue to questions, or do you have anything else on the series? Uh, oh, yeah, because uh, I did, I did, way back when I did the OUSA review, um, I did buy a, the first volume of the manga to read, and yeah. I gotta say, the art in the manga, like, the character designs for the anime look just like they were copied from it. Like, hmm. the manga is beautiful. It's crisp, it's clear, it's very detailed. And uh, the the color illustrations that come come before chapter one or the, at the very beginning of chapter one look like screenshots from the anime. It's just absolutely gorgeous. All but right. the the anime does improve on the crazy faces. <laughs> I'd imagine. Plus, they're in motion. I think that really yeah. helps the crazy faceness of the crazy faces. Uh, yeah, that, that interests me in the manga. I um, I'm always hesitant to read manga that I already watched the anime of because I don't want to. Uh, go through the same story uh, so soon after seeing the story in a different form. But uh, if we don't get an anime for or it's a third season for a while, then maybe I'll have to go to the manga. There's only 13 volumes. It's not that many. Uh, okay, anyway, questions? Sure. Right, from X Basil Time. On a scale from one ounce to Kaiji, how sports involved is Kakiguri? Uh I've not seen Kaiji, but you obviously have. And you made a little comparison. Uh, <gasps> Are we going to have to have you on Talking to Radio when we do Kaiji this this year? Maybe. I would have to watch Kaiji. This is, I'm, I'm going to pose that to Jared. Uh, I've Can not you... seen One Ounce either. Have you seen that? I have not seen One Ounce. I'm, I'm an older one. Uh, oh, I guess the anime is not that old. It's from 2008. But, 
Oh, all the way back then, hey? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, back when I was graduating high school. <laughs> Shut up, youngin. Uh, but yeah, we we sort of answered that, or Ink sort of answered that. Um, moving on from Wandering Gamer, if you had to play a game where your life was on the line, what would your choice of vice be? See now, I'd love to say Keijo, uh, <laughs> but because I do have a superb sense of balance, but um, I do not have the breasts to play that game. Uh, you know, I'm going to say Mealborn. What is Mealborn, Mealborn is a, a French card game, and it's all about completing a trip in 1,000 miles. Mm. And um, it's a turn-based game, and you uh, you can either put down like a roll card, a safety card, uh, a mileage card, or a uh, disaster card on your opponent. Mm. Uh, and it's a lot of fun, uh, even with just two players, because you're constantly like, Try, yeah, it's, it's just a lot of fun, and if you get more players in, it's even more fun. Uh, but I have insanely good luck in that game, as my girlfriend <laughs> will, will uh, pound her fists on the table while telling you. <laughs> How about you, Corey? Uh, well, followers of me might know that I'm a big fan of Magic the Gathering, um, and I'm also a big fan of like Super Smash Brothers Melee. But I'm I'm not good enough where I don't where I think I would win every game if my life was on the line. But Magic is random enough that I think I could squeak out a game, even if I was worse than my opponent. Uh, it's a, a game of give and take, of how good I am at the game, and also how lucky will I be at the game. <laughs> uh, anyway, third question from Isanga. What do you think of the cheating being acceptable as opposed to straight gambling? I thought it was uh, perfectly in theme with the show. Like, honestly, you have a, an entire school structure, an entire societal structure where, you know, the rich are empowered and will do anything to keep their power and status. So having them recognize and in, in training the future, uh, you know, rich and powerful to say, OK, these are the actual rules our society lives by, you know, cheat so long as you don't get caught. And that's yeah. very that comes up in the series because they have. The student council who are supposed to be very impartial if they witness cheating they'll call it out and you know no more from that point forward mm-hmm. <laughs> like no one's disqualified but right no more <laughs> and, like that was another interesting thing when in the i believe it was the f- first season or the beginning of the second season when they were um gambling away their decks to the student council um like it was yumiko and mary and two other characters um mm-hmm. And they were each around the table. They were all cheating with each other. But Yumiko says, isn't it more fun with cheating? Like, this is uh, a situation where both sides know, uh, even though it's 1v1v1v1. In this game, it was kind of 2v2. Uh, Both sides know that they were cheating with each other. Um, But it is is an acceptable thing. Because this, this is just life. Everyone is cheating against everybody. And when you look at it, it is a skill. Like, yeah. how you manipulate the system, that's definitely a thing. So, yeah, I'm, com- I'm, I'm comfortable with it in the fact that it's so ugly and very accurately, accurately reflects the capitalistic tendencies. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's, uh, next question, from, also from Izangra. Uh, well, have you, have you watched Hunter x Hunter? Do you know anything about it? I've watched 
five episodes of Hunter x Hunter, and then I found out it was like a bazillion episodes long, and then stopped watching Hunter x Hunter. It's only 146, and it's very good. That's it, a bazillion. It will be definitely worth it. It's like one and a half Space Brothers. Yeah, I know. Look, when it, those anime were both airing at the same time, and I at some <laughs> point they were both airing on the same day, so that Ooh. was like the greatest day for me for those seasons because those were two of my favorite anime not only of the seasons in which they were airing but of the entire decade you know i did enjoy what i saw i just never continued that's that's on me <laughs> anyway there's this character named hisoka and he gets uh turned on by fighting and he like infamously has the schwing image like i'm sure you've seen uh Continuing, now that I've explained everything, Hisoka getting graphically turned on by fighting, Jabami getting graphically turned on by gambling, why anime? I mean, it's kind of easy. (laughs) If if you want to show someone get ecstatic, why not take it to the nth level and just have them orgasm? It's basically what they're doing. Yeah. Hunter Hunter is also a show in an anime, purportedly for teen-aged or just before teen-aged boys. And honestly, like... The amount of drool coming off of some of these characters' faces <laughs> and like the sweat shown in their lap, in the near their crotch specifically, yeah. like during games, it's you know it's meant to be like tension, sweat drip. But you know, these characters are also you know so excited. It's like, oh, did they squirt? Uh, yeah, I think uh, <laughs> I- Ikigami Ikishima actually did was like touching herself in one episode. Oh, yeah, she definitely does grab, like, that area yeah. at one point. And her breast another, and... Yeah. Uh, this, is a, this is a strange anime, is what we're saying. I don't mind it. I mean, it's it's not, like, uh, it's not gratuitous. It's in theme with how the characters are, you know, acting out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I so mean, it's, it's... Oh, it's, it's very gratuitous, but it is in theme. Yeah. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's uh, like Keijo. It's not fan service, even though it can be construed as such. It's just more uh, expressionistic. Yeah, I mean, it's both. Hmm. I would call it both fan service and expressive. Like it, it does really emphasize what they are feeling in these moments. And um, since the opening kind of set the te- set the scene for us in terms of expectations of what this anime was going to be visually. Um, I don't think it's uh, extraneous or um, extra in any way, but it is. I mean, it's extra in comparison to other anime, but like in its own context, it's not very extra. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but final question. Um, this isn't really a question, but I hope you spend a lot of time talking about Baksumami, who I was totally suspicious of, and I guess their spoiler reveal was, but, but was completely fascinated by, and that is not something that we talked about at all. Baksubami, who I'm reading on Wikipedia, is an anime original character. Hmm. Yeah, she, uh, she, they, they are um, uh, a servant. Uh, they're introduced as a servant of the Moribami clan, mm-hmm. who comes and does all the character introductions for all the new, new monsters of the week that come in in the second, uh, second core, second season. Um, and turns out, uh, I don't know. She has a, uh, they have a, uh, a backstory that we actually go down and find out, and it's actually pretty satisfying. Yeah. Uh, pretty, pretty uh, predictable, but uh, you know, it's fine. It at least had some story. <laughs> yeah, and I guess it being uh, her being they being the being anime original um, was very interesting uh, or very uh, conclusive, um, since 
gonna have to get banged on. Once manga story was already out, they were able to just tell this uh, completed story um, within the the Bummy clan story. Like she was here, or they were here, um, being a servant to or within the Bummy clan, and they decided to try to take a little revenge, but it kind of backfired on them the way they did it, and like everyone. From the outside, saw how it could backfire, but since they're, by their very nature, they are competitive uh, and contrary to each other. They, they didn't really, uh, even though they realized it from the outside, they didn't really get into it, uh, or get into being cooperative until well into this whole arc. And I kind of find it funny, uh, like I did not know this was uh, an anime original character, uh, and it explains a lot why that particular arc in which they're introduced like really feels like the only solidly progressive arc there um or one that actually you know has its beginning middle and end mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to the entire other anime which just goes and like you know i i, I want to know how much of the manga is finished before the anime started adapting it and you know really if they're gonna keep continuing to adapt it because like you said like i really want to know the backstories that we haven't gotten yet and if they picked it up really early and then we're like oh shit they're only like you know two volumes in and now we're gonna have to do filler for until the next uh, third season yeah uh, i'm i find it very interesting that they decided to have this anime only character at all because it started the anime started in 2017 so if we assume that it's, I, I don't remember when it started, but if we assume it started at the beginning of the year, there were five volumes out at the time. So I imagine maybe the first season is the first five volumes, and then the second season went in uh, sometime in 2019. And then we again assume that it started at the beginning of the year, there were ten volumes. So like I don't imagine that they would uh, reach the point where they would be running out of material. And if they do come in with a third season, is uh, is that character just going to disappear? Because mm-hmm. <laughs> or will or will she or will the mangaka have written there into the story somewhere? Yeah, I mean they are. Uh, Box of Mommy is already pretty much in the background from both the beginning and or prior to and following their arc. Mm. So maybe it's just easy to forget about them. A true assassin. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. Now I really want to read the manga to see what happens. <laughs> In between those, uh, whether it just like jumped from right before that arc to right after that arc, or whether there was something else in between there that they decided to omit, I don't know. It is available on Comixology and probably a lot of other places. Yeah, I'll have to find it. But uh, until then, let's uh, close out this episode. Hank, where can we find you on the internet? You can find me at uh, anagamers.com. Uh, I co-host a little podcast called Old Talking No Radio. Uh, see, coming up, we're recording soon for a episode about uh, Tokyo Godfathers for our uh, December episode. Of course. Uh, we also have uh, on our, our Patreon exclusive, we've started producing um, a mini series about Avatar The Last Airbender called Old Taku on a Bender. And we just finished up the mini series about Space Brothers, where we did this fun mix of. Uh, space news like actual space news and uh reviews like real deep dives into each volumes as released by sentai filmworks um so it was a lot of fun to a lot of fun to produce that we're having a lot of fun with the airbender one now too um also there's a new column over at anagamers called the mystery box of misery where my closet got too full of 
shit DVDs <laughs> and that I got from mystery boxes across the years and uh, decided to start inflicting their torture upon my fellow contributors over at Handgamers. So uh, our patrons get to vote on who has to review what, and then I send the discs out of my house to those reviewers, and they have to write a room, and everyone can read them on Anagamers.com. And, uh, yeah, uh, old reviews and uh, columns over on FandomPost.com. Please show that site some love. It is uh, in danger of disappearing. Uh, check out Fandom Post on Twitter. You can check out uh, the address to uh, donate or become a patron and uh, give Chris the means to continue to produ- producing a, a huge volume of stuff for uh, other people to enjoy. Yeah, um, including my stuff. I guess <laughs> where I got my start, I don't know if this podcast would be around if I didn't do that. But uh, definitely so love you, Chris. Post. Uh, and then Otaku USA. Uh, there, there's some of my features and reviews online that you can find, or you can buy back issues of the paper magazine. That's about it. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Impassionate K. You can find this podcast on Twitter at Taiku Podcast. It's T A I I K U. And you can find all of our episodes over at TaikuPodcast.com. Uh, thank you for coming on, talking about uh, horny gambling anime. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Hello. Hi. How's my Corey? Not bad. Good. Hey, guys. Hello. Hey, Chris. Uh, so, Chris, what do you want to do these in? Um, I was actually wondering, could I tank, take point? Sure. Yeah, that, that way, uh, I was going to do them chronologically, okay. uh, based off of when, when they were made. Okay, okay. Um, what do you want to open the whole episode, or do you want me to do that skill? No. Uh, you, you, you do you do the honors. You are the, the, the host and owner. That's the word. Fuck me. <laughs> my, my brain was stuck with an H for some reason. I was like, hey. <laughs> let's go. Oops, something went wrong. That seems bad. Oh, well. Uh, yeah, let's go. Um...